0: Oh, hey, folks, this is my interview with John Williams, who I used to work with at the Universal City Hard Rock Cafe in Universal City, California, that has since closed R.I.P., And we've broken this podcast episode up into a few episodes because we talked for almost three hours and he has a lot of stories to tell. And he actually told me at the end of the three hours, oh man, I had more stories to tell you. And I said, well, we'll have to come back and do it again. And so just so you know, this was broken up because we recorded for a long time. So he will be our guest for the next few weeks. And we're super appreciative of the vulnerability and the honesty and some public declarations that he made that he has never made before. So it was a really fun episode to record i learned a lot and he has a lot of wisdom for working in the service industry for over 30 years so yeah be prepared to maybe cry a little bit maybe uh he gets a little honest a little vulnerable and it's really lovely so yeah we just really appreciate you listening let's get on with this show
1: bucket let's just go
0: let's just go Oh, hi,
2: you're listening to Service From Hell, a podcast featuring people that are currently in customer service positions or the lucky few that got out and all of the good, bad, and infinitely irritating things that go along with that work. I'm actor and writer Kate Gaffney, and I'm uniquely qualified to discuss this as I used to work at a very busy and very popular comedy club in Los Angeles. And at least one of you listening right now has probably grabbed me and told me you were ready to order when I was running around like a crazy person. So
0: let's eat.
2: I'd like to welcome our guest, actor and manager John Williams. No, not the composer. John Hills from the great state of New Jersey and has studied acting for most of his life. You have seen him all over the place on your TVs and your screens, but I'm certain you will remember him from Mad Men. Y'all should look it up. He's really good. And from loads of productions at the Sacred Fools Theater, which is a great theater space. You may have also seen him in various locations at the Hard Rock Cafe all over the literal actual world. We both have the distinction of playing snout in theater productions of A Midsummer Night Night's Dream, which I'm very proud of, and I'm certain is his most proud credit. I better know John from being co workers at the Hard Rock Cafe in Universal City, which is now torn down, so sad, and going to his Mad Men viewing party at his apartment and thinking I was not going to have anything to say because I was starstruck and super nervous. That said, John, what brought you out to LA? How much fun was John Ham? How was managing? Tell us.
1: So I didn't actually interact with John Ham. Although he did used to do some work at Sacred Fools. Oh, he did? So John Hamm and I did not do any scene work together on Mad Men. I was sort of a plot device to make my scene partner a little nuts. I had weird behaviors. In, we shared an office, and the whole idea was to get him to keep bugging his bosses for a, his own office. That was really the whole reason I existed on the show. It was a nice little bit of comic relief because the show was mostly serious. Um, when... I auditioned. I went directly to producers. Laura Schiff was the casting director, and Matt Weiner is the creator of the show and showrunner. He was the showrunner for the last five years of The Sopranos. And I was watching the show. I had already been a fan of the show. I had been watching the show, and I found it very curious that for a show that took place in New York, nobody had New York accents. It was very interesting to me, especially because Matt Weiner was all over The Sopranos. So I thought about it and thought about it. I was like, I just created this backstory for my character that he was not college educated and that he was from Brooklyn and that he needed to have like a, a, a a noticeable New York accent. And I brought it into the room and Matt Weiner like practically fell off the couch. Oh, I just knew like there were two people behind me and I was the first guy in the room, which is usually a very good sign. I knew walking out of the room that the job was mine. There was no question. Um, and this is actually a, f- a funny story because it actually becomes quite long. So the first part of the story is: so I was leaving the room, and because I don't see very well, I save my sides. I re- I rewrite my sides in a larger font so I can read them on the fly in the room. And Matt Weiner has a rule that you have to throw the sides in the trash, and I. Because he doesn't want people holding on to his like confidential material, and a lot of casting people do that, um, a lot of producers do that, and so uh, I was very hesitant to throw it away because there were my sides that I needed to read, and but I had already ha- had the part, I just didn't know it. And he's like trying to get me to throw them away, and I'm like, but I but but but. And Laura Schiff is like, John, throw them away. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm gonna throw them away now. And then they're like, have a gummy bear, and. They had like a bowl of gummy bears, and I said, "You know, I'm I, I'm going to pass on the gummy bears. I'm trying not to be so schlubby. You know, I'm a chubby guy for people who don't, who can't see me, obviously." And uh, and Matt Weiner goes, "Son, schlubby is what's getting you this job." <laughs> and I said, "Yes, sir." And I took a handful and walked out the door. <laughs> but the pre, so oh, so the precursor to that is that I'm a big poker guy. I love playing poker, and. My manager at the time, a guy named Herb Karp, he brought me on and he is a big poker guy and there's like this Hollywood sort of behind the scenes poker scene, especially 15 years ago. And I got invited to this group to play poker and by Herb to go hang out with these behind the camera people. And for people who don't know about show business, Often behind-the-camera people don't like new actors because they're very earnest they want to know everything about the casting person and they said they're very invasive and they jump on them way too much and so I knew this I was very aware of this I'd already been in the town for eight or nine years and so I go to this poker tournament and I play for I don't know a long time maybe a year a year and a half and I'm playing with seven or eight really big casting directors and a whole bunch of other producers and that kind of stuff, and I never not once mentioned that I was an actor. Herb, the first day, tried to introduce me to somebody. He said, let me introduce you to this casting director. I was like, no! And he was like, w- w- what? I'm like, I do not want them to know I'm a casting uh, an actor. And he's like, why? I'm like, because as soon as they know that I'm an actor, they're not gonna talk to me. He's like, what? I'm like, you've never been an actor you don't know, but casting people do not talk to actors who they don't know. They just don't because it's, it's it's such an invasive thing because so many actors, especially young actors, are so desperate to get in front of casting people because the slots are so few and there's so many actors. So it was probably know, maybe a year, a year and a half, and I they, none of these people knew I was an actor. And so I sit down at a table for this tournament. Laura is to my left, if you know anything about poker. She has position on me. And the very first hand of this tournament, and she's also, Laura is not, the best loser. She's a lovely person, don't misunderstand. And, and rightly so, I, a lot of people don't take losing well. So the tournament starts, I'm first to act. I make a small raise with a medium hand and she raises, there's two callers behind. I make the call because there's nobody behind me. I can make the call with no threat of another raise. And then I, I flop the nut hand. She, uh, she can't win, no matter what she has at that moment. And so I make a little tiny bet just to see where I'm at, and she goes all in. The other two people immediately fold, and I think about it for one half second, and I call. I had the nut straight. It was a rainbow board, so there was very few draws that she could have. The only thing that she could win with is if she had a set, which she did. She had three aces, and if the board paired, she'd win, and if it didn't, I win no matter what. And I won. I took all of her chips in the very first hand. She got so mad. Oh, sorry, I'm going to step back here, right? So the interesting thing about this is that while we were sitting there waiting for the tournament to start, there was a commercial, a very popular commercial that I had running for a Chevy, I think. And it was all me. Like, my face was ginormous on the television. She goes, I, did, I didn't know you were an actor. yeah. And she goes, why don't you tell me? I said, because if I told you, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. And she was like, wow, you're so smart. So going back, she got really mad and she kind of stomped and stormed off. And I did really well in the tournament and had a great day. And then I got home and I was like, how can I make this work to my advantage? So I took two playing cards, the aces that she lost with, and I glued them together in a way like they're a hand of cards. And then I wrote in a Sharpie, dear Rockets, sorry for the bad beat. Hope to see you in your office sometime. And then without signing my name, I mailed it to her office.
2: That is so fucking gangster.
1: Okay, let me tell you. She called me in for something a week later. Uh, she loved what I did, but I wasn't right for it. And then the next week, I went right to producers
2: for Mad Men. For Mad Men, yeah.
1: And we had a relationship. She she cast me in a couple of things, a couple other things. But one of them was L.A. Noir, which is a video game. It was really cool because I every actor wants to do a little bit of every area of the business, and yes. I always wanted to do a video game, but it's hard work to get. And I got to do the motion capture stuff, and then they put you in a barber chair. And they put 36 cameras around you. And with this, this was very advanced technology at the time because the character in LA Noire looks exactly like me. Shut up. But it's, but it's an animated thing. And to the point where this, this is really a crazy. So 10 years later, I'm working at the Hard Rock. Okay, I have a full bar. I think it's Halloween Horror Nights, actually. So it's crazy busy there. right? There's, I noticed that there's a guy standing by the host stand staring at me, just staring staring, staring, and I'm working, working, I look up, he's staring at me, like, for 10 minutes, right, I have this couple, two kids, like, in their early 20s, sitting in front of me, and I'm engaging them, and he's behind them, so I can see him staring at me the whole time, right, so finally, he comes over, and he looks at me, and he says, are are you in the TV show Mad Men?
2: Oh, bless him, and I'm like,
1: I am, I played Warren McKenna, and Then the couple gets all excited because now they know somebody who's been on TV, right? Yeah. So I shake hands with the guy and we have a little conversation. He leaves, right? So then the kids start staring at me, the kid who was sitting at the bar. And he looks at me and goes, wait, are you an L.A. noir? Holy shit. And I'm like, how did you even pick that up? Like, it's an animated thing. He said, you look just like the guy with the money. And I'm like that's me that's me <laughs> yeah but that but working with and for laura was a really lovely experience oh let me finish so so after after i left that audition and i knew i knew there's there's times as an actor you just know mm-hmm. and i called herb and i was like there's no question i have this job he goes well we'll see because he was that guy and so i'm like you know what i don't have anything to do today or tomorrow i'm going to go play poker so i drive for from her office, which was sort of in mid city and it was near one of the poker casinos that I go to. So I drove down there and I played in a poker tournament. I got second place and I won 1200 bucks. I I started like at 1130 and I played from 1130 PM to 1130 AM.
2: Holy shit, John.
1: And I was like, all right, I'm exhausted. I gotta go home. I drive home. I'm on my way home, my phone rings, I'm in bumper to bumper traffic, I'm exhausted, I'm almost like falling asleep, killing myself. And then Herb calls and says, you booked the job! Uh, So I go home, I flop on the bed, I fall asleep, and the phone rings and it's production asking me if I wanna go in 10 minutes to the table read. I was like, yep, I'll be there. And completely on adrenaline. This is one of my favorite little moments as an actor. So Mad Men had a huge cast. So they had this big, giant office where they had a four tables put together with maybe 30 chairs all around it for all the primary actors. And then secondary characters or day players would sit against the wall. And so I was in there and I was talking to... to Laura, and I said, you're not going to believe this, but I left your office and I played poker all night. I flopped on my bed at 1230 and you guys called me 10 minutes later. And she goes, don't screw it up. Oh, I'm not going to screw it up. So Matt Weiner comes in and he's looking around and he sees that my name is not on the primary table. And he calls over a, an assistant and he says, well, where's John Williams? She goes, oh, he's, o- he's over there. He's o- against the wall. And he goes, no, no, he's got to be on the table. And they, moved my, they took some other schlub off the table and put them against the wall and put me on the table. And I did the table read.
2: And so did you come out to LA to act?
1: Yeah. So like most people, I wanted to be an actor. You know, most people in LA wanted to be an actor. And when I was 13, my dad sort of basically forbade, forbade me to being involved in show business. And then when I was 18, I tried my hand in college and my dad was like, uh, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. And so I put it on the shelf and in the, in the back of my head said, maybe when I'm older, maybe when I'm 30, I'll approach this. And then I had some success running movie theaters and I was good at that job and but there was no long-term plan for that because I was at the peak of where I could be there was very few opportunities above the, 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 the theater level and uh, so I was like you know what I really want to do this acting thing and I had been doing community theater around New Jersey and so I went and sat down with my folks and I said I'm a grown-up boy and I'm gonna go quit my job and I'm gonna take acting lessons and they were both very supportive, but my father had his doubts. And then the first time he saw me on TV, he could not stop talking about it. He just thought it was the best thing ever. So um, ultimately, he came around. But as a as a young man, as a teenager, he was terrified that I was gonna I was gonna be broke. And honestly, my father was concerned that I was gonna be gay, which I am gay. So I mean, that's yeah. part of who I am. But as a as a man who graduated high school in 1955. He was worried about the implications of being homosexual, not just for me as a person, but in the broad spectrum of a society that at that time didn't really accept gay people as much as we do now. So, you know, I, I understand. you know, in the long term, I understood, but I felt really rejected as a kid by the fact that he didn't embrace my dreams and was also afraid of me being gay. And actually, my dad passed a few years ago, and he never knew. I never no, told him.
2: Are you sad you didn't?
1: No, because I don't, the only thing that would come from that. And this is only for me. I can't communicate this to anybody else, but from my experience, the only thing that would come is that would hurt my dad. And there's no reason for me to hurt my dad. He was at the end of his life. He was sick. He was. We knew he was gonna pass away. He had Parkinson's. And I was like, I came out to my sisters a few years ago. You know, it's very interesting. I got a, a text today. There's a, a young lady named Jessica. She lives in Minneapolis and she was working at the Hard Rock there and we both got to go to bar rocker which is a bartending competition before i went into management for hard rock and we so there you have you do a cafe level competition and whoever wins that competition then gets to go to the regionals and then the regionals go to the finals and then somebody's. Then you go to the nationals, internationals, right? So because it's a you know it's a worldwide thing, it's a big deal. Like it's a lot of press, and the person who ends up being the bar rocker for a particular year has some notoriety, and people revere them. And there's a lot of perks to it. It's a really cool thing. Now I was never going to get there. um, One because I was not really a good bottle flipper. I just got there unfortunately because JD Sakamoto passed away. He was a bartender at our cafe and. And he was one of the faces of Hard Rock, and he had done these ads around L.A. where he was doing a six tin pour of different martinis, all different colors. It was a rainbow thing. And I was like, all right, cool. I'm gay. Nobody knows I'm gay. I'm going to do this rainbow thing and front it like it's a tribute to J.D., which it was, legitimately was, but I'm going to add that little... Message. ...little thing, because I was really approaching the point where I wanted to come out, but I just wasn't in that space yet. And so... I did the competition, and it, people went nuts. It was just the coolest thing ever. And I, you know, I didn't have the skill set to be a really advanced, flair bartender. But I went to the regionals. We had a really good time. And so Jessica and a whole bunch of other bartenders and I went up to the top of the space needle, and we were talking about Hard Rock stuff and life and cool stuff. And there was about probably eight or nine of us. There were 15 total competitors, and I was way older. I'm, I'm so right now, just so for people listening, I'm 59 years old. And most of the people that I was there with were in their 20s. So we're sitting there and having this these cool conversations about who we know from Hard Rock and cool things that have happened at the Hard Rock. And this couple comes in and they're dressed up super nice. And the dude faces her towards downtown and he gets he's wearing a suit and he gets down on one knee. And I get all... Verklempt. Mushy about it. I would have right? too. And the girls are like, I hate when they do that at the Hard Rock. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? When people come to the Hard Rock to propose, it means that they had their first date there and they thought we were cool as hell. That they remember that experience and that as part of that cafe, part of that experience, it was significant enough to them that they want to come and make a, a permanent life decision in the space where they maybe had their first date or they decided to go steady or or whatever. So today, I get this lovely text. I'm going to read it because it's five years ago today that we were in in the Space Needle. It says, five years ago today, we met and you changed my perspective on life and people with a conversation on top of this building. Thank you. Which was just lovely. And I love this woman. I can't tell you. We went and opened a Hard Rock in Guyana together, which was really cool. My Hard Rock experience has been amazing because I get to to impact people, not just in my own cafe as a bartender for so many years, but now as a manager, now I get to mentor servers and bartenders and bussers and cooks.
2: Well, I'm going to pause you because okay. we're going to get there in the second section. So I want to just re- just rewind just a hair. So when you were commuting from Jersey to New York City for school, for theater school, right?
1: Right. So- I went to Lee Strasberg Theater Institute. I studied at HB Studios, uh, took a, a, a class with Elaine Stretch at uh, Stella Adler. So here's the thing about being an actor when you see most actors not all but most actors who have a really good skill set they got that skill set because they went to a four-year university with a really good theater program because as an actor i came to it really late i went i quit my job on my 30th birthday so i well so as an aside i started working for amc theaters on my 18th birthday I got hired on my 18th birthday and then worked there 12 years and then quit on my 30th birthday to go to acting school. And I was gonna commute from New Jersey. I wanted to get a job uh, at like TJ Fridays or Hulu G- Hulu Hands or something like that. And ended up getting a job at TJ Fridays. And it was so funny because in the 70s and 80s, Piano Man was a big, huge song. And I used to think about the bartender John at the bar is a friend of mine. He gets me my drinks for free, but he's a quick with a joke or to light up your smoke, but there's some place that he'd rather be. And my name is John and I always wanted to be a bartender and whatever. It just sort of, and I wanted to be an actor and it was just like this thing. And so I've sort of, have my life has sort of mimicked that because I have had a lot of success as an actor, but I never got to be that place where I could stop working. I mean, I did, but I never chose to because I didn't want to give up that steady paycheck. So I always was, Doing acting stuff and working as a bartender, so I went to T.J. Fridays and they taught me how to be a server. And then I ended up in in New York, uh, commuting to school. And that experience was really hard because I was the commute was a little rough. It was like an hour and a half on the train both ways. And um, and I got very fortunate to go find an apartment in New York for six hundred bucks in nineteen ninety four. Then my experience in New York was became better because I was able to be not only going to acting school, but I was able to immerse myself in the acting community in New York. About three years in of being living in New York, I was like, okay, I finished at Strasbourg, I'm having some success doing some small theater in the city. And I said, let me send out a headshot and see if I can get an agent. So I'm like 32 or 33 at the time. And the only guy who responded was a, a lovely man named Bill Schell, who was a legendary agent in New York City, but at this point he was in his seventies. So he was now way past his prime as an agent. And he was sort of just doing it to keep himself busy, I think. And he took me on and he sent me in for my very first audition. And it was for the remake of Lolita with Jeremy Irons and Melanie Griffith. I go to the audition and the casting assistant has me read. And she goes, Okay, great. That's really good. I'm gonna have you come back and say Alan Chenowith, who was the casting director for that movie. And She says, Ellen would like you to watch the original version of the movie before you come back to read with her next week. I'm like, okay. So I get out. The week is going by. The scene is really short for me. I'm thinking about it, and I keep planning to go to Blockbuster to try and find the movie, and I never get there. And and I'm like, I just don't want to do this. I don't want to watch this movie. I go to the audition. And so we so i don't read in a, a reading room i read in ellen channel's office which is this oaken that all the walls are oak and she has this giant oak desk and she's from texas and she's wearing cowboy boots and her feet are up on her desk and she's six foot tall she's this larger than life lady who's probably in her late 50s early 60s that time that time she's a whiskey drinking cowgirl from texas who makes movies really super cool lady so the a, a short step back, my acting teacher at Strasburg, Strasburg was a guy named George Loras, who most of his students flip and hate the guy because he's really abusive. Like, no, you're doing it wrong, and he would be really aggressive with them. And but he and I had a very special relationship because he directed a play for the second year students when I was a first year student, and he and a kid quit, and he brought me in with seven days, and I learned forty pages of the dialogue in three days and did the did the job. And he loved the fact that I could handle anything he thought. He, he just considered me to have the potential to be an, a, a real actor. So Ellen, I'm sitting in her office and she's going over a resume. We haven't even read yet. She's, she's going over the resume on the back of my picture. And she's looking at my resume and she goes, wait, you you studied with George Lauros?" And she, it was a bait question. She she actually was like, what do you think of George Lauros?" Ooh. Because...
2: She knew his reputation. She, she
1: knows his reputation. They're really yeah. good friends, and he knows, she knows. And I said, I love George Lawrence. And she was like, Really? You love George Lawrence? I was like, Yes, ma'am, I do. And she goes, I find that hard to believe. Everybody hates that man. And I'm like, George and I have a very special relationship, and I can't explain that to you, but he loves me, and I love him, and we're good. And she was like, All right. And then, that, so she's already met. She's a little steamy because she thinks she thinks I'm, you're lying. She thinks I'm lying to her, right? Ooh. And then she she leans in, she goes, Did you watch that movie? And I'm like, No, ma'am, I did not. And her head tilts with her she's wearing a cowboy hat. And her she her head tilts and she goes, Why the hell not? And I was like, I was completely composed. I was the most Zen I've ever been in my whole life. I was like, ma'am, I don't want to do some guy's work from 1949. I want to do my work. Wow. And she was like, that's a good answer. And then we read. She goes, all right, that's good. I like it. And a couple days later, I get a call that I booked the job, which was super cool. And I actually didn't make the cut in the movie because I ran out of green screen. They didn't have money for the green screen. And they couldn't make the missing arm work properly. So there's a point in the movie where you see through the kitchen window, you see me and Lolita's husband working on the shed in the backyard. But that's my only, you know, I don't get. And it was a really choice little role and that was an unfortunate situation because I was so stoked for that movie because I mean so living living New York was really great for me because I wasn't super close to my folks I was 50 miles away from my family so I could be a little bit more comfortable with my own Sexuality, which I did not experiment hardly at all in New York at all. I was so terrified of people judging me. It was ridiculous now looking back at it. but
2: It's not ridiculous. Well. It was it, not. That was the reality of the time, and that's how for, you felt.
1: It, well, I guess, yeah. So anyway, um, I made a whole bunch of money on that movie. A lot. I went to, yeah. I They flew me to Texas for two weeks. Very first job. Made a lot of money. So there's two sides to that. So the first thing about that money, I was like, hell, this is easy. <laughs> Right? which this is, is a, why I wanted you to tell us. Which is a big <laughs> trap for actors because if, if it's easy in the beginning, you think you, you think you can put it down and not work as hard as you need to. <laughs> yep. Um, which, which is a little bit of a trap for me mm-hmm. um, in my early part of my career because when I got to California, I worked like a crazy person and I wasn't even trying very hard. And had I tried very hard, I could have had a much bigger career. But I just didn't know what I didn't know. On many levels, on many levels, not just not just what I didn't know that I needed to work harder because it was coming so easy, but I also didn't know that I didn't know a lot about being an actor and being disciplined and being like there was just a lot of mistakes that I made, and also my friends were much more advanced than me in their careers because they were working behind the camera, and so I was running around with people who spent more money than I did, and I was trying to keep up with them, so it was always not financially as stable as i should be like there were so many there's so many traps to being a young actor and i mean i was 32 but like mentally i was a young actor because it was brand new to me That's right. um anyway so i made a huge ton of money and at the time Screen Actor Guild oh it got in the Screen Actors Guild which is not the right thing to do for a brand right new away. actor you need yeah. to spend two or three years doing all this non-union work right. so you can develop your skill set mm-hmm. and then but I didn't know that nobody I didn't have a real mentor in that regard to tell me you know what you shouldn't join the union right now you should wait mm-hmm. and do some more non-union stuff so that was a mistake on my part and SAG insurance was only $3,000 in earnings away for me Damn. at that time. I was like, okay, so what do I have to do? Now in New York there's a huge extras community, you can do extra work, whatever. So I go and I sign up for extra work and I start doing these little jobs. And I do like New York Undercover and up shows like that. And then I get this call in the afternoon I'm off of work and uh, from the hard, uh, from the Hard Rock where I was working at the time. I get this call, it's a last minute booking to do extra work and it's gonna be in Times Square. So the woman calls me at like 11 uh, She says, hey, uh, can you do work today? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And she goes, you need to go to this address in Times Square. You have to be there by like three o'clock. I'm like, okay, cool. She, I said, what's the wardrobe? She says, just uh, typical New York. What, what a New Yorker would wear. So I'm like, okay. So I wear white sneakers, painter's pants, a baseball jersey that looks like a Yankee jersey. It's not a Yankees jersey, but it looks like a Yankees jersey. And a blue baseball cap with no logo. Because when you do extra works, they, they don't want logos and stuff. Because depending on the circumstance of the movie, they, they might have to blur it or not be able to use it. So, so, I, so I looked like I was just a typical Yankee fan, but not wearing the right stuff. Like, so they put us in holding. And the holding, they have 150 actors in a movie theater in Times Square. Right Now, I just spent 12 years working in movie, movies, right? And so the the, P, the set PA comes to us and says, listen, we're not going to use you for five hours, right? We have to wait for it to get dark. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So so I, 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 I talked to the PA. I said, listen, I just spent 12 years running movie theaters for AMC Theaters. As a general manager, I know for sure that when you rent this theater, you rent the right to show the movie. Can you ask them to show the movie for us if we're going to sit there? He goes, All right, I'll ask.
2: That's really nice because a PA would normally be like, fuck yourself and you're off the set. So
1: that was New York, not LA. Fair enough. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Keep going. (laughs) So he asks and they said yes. Wow. So this is a little funny side story, right? So it's 150 extras who are all regular working extras. And we watched The First Wives Club, which is a film that's shot in New York City. Yeah, it is. And it's all these party scenes with dozens of extras, right? And they're like, oh, look, there's. Jimmy and and oh I'm coming! Watch! Watch! Wait here! Here I come! Here, come, here so I come! Here I come! And then the girl comes around the corner and then we goes, yeah there you are! Like, oh my god! It was god. just the cutest thing ever. And so we watched that movie and then it was a threeplex. So then they watched another. We watched another movie which I don't even remember what that was. They let us watch two movies back to back. And the sun starts to go down and they start they pull like fifteen or eighteen people and they put us on different street corners and they want us to cross for. A scene at the end of a movie called a simple wish which is with martin short and kathleen turner the bit has a taxi cab crossing in front of the camera and then you see martin short walking down the street with a dog as he crosses the street he approaches a newsman and so they have all these extras on these different street corridors waiting to cross. But there were so many tourists in the way that they couldn't let, they couldn't give us the, act, the action cue. They were just letting the tourists do the work. So we're just standing there doing nothing. And all the tourists were talking to us about, are you guys making me whatever? And so I started having fun. And I was like, yeah, we are making them. And like, who's in it? And I'm like, me, my, my, I'm John Williams. And this is Casey, whatever her name is. And we're in it. And, and they're like, and they're like, really? I'm like, yeah. So I started signing autographs. I love the it so corners, much. Right? I love
2: it so much.
1: <laughs> right. And so it's me and these two teenage girls and a PA on the corner waiting for directions, right? And we're laughing our heads off because as people walking away, I'm signing autographs and I've done one feature film that's not been released yet that I'm ultimately gonna get cut out of And now you're doing background work. <laughs> and now I'm doing background work, which with no disrespect to extras, sucks it, a it's, dick. it's not a celebrity thing. So the PA has his radio and, the, and it comes over the radio. Hey, we need a bunch of male extras to come over here. We need to pick somebody for something special. And it's me and eight guys wearing business suits and carrying briefcases, right? So they look at the other eight guys wearing business suits and like, all right, we're going to take the guy look like he's a New Yorker. And they start setting up this little makeshift using milk crates and a whole bunch of newspapers to me selling newspapers. The direction was hold the newspaper up for Martin Short to read it as he goes by and the camera will close in on it and then we'll go to, we'll fade to black. But it took him a long time to set everything up and they're moving the camera around, whatever. So I start fooling around with the prop guys and I'm like, get your post here. New York Post, 50 foot rabbi terrorizes Nebraska. Suddenly the whole set goes super quiet everybody stops moving. And then there's this conf thing and the prop guys are like, I'm not sure if you're in trouble or not, but something's going on. So then the assistant director comes over to me, he goes, can you do that again, but just a little bit bigger? I put the newspaper way up in the air. I'm like, get your post here, New York Post, 50 foot rabbi terrorizes Nebraska. Suddenly there's a flurry of action happening. And I don't know any of the background, the 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 behind the scenes people, right? Suddenly, a guy starts heading towards me. The prop guy goes, "Kid, you just got yourself bumped up." You're I gonna... would, I will cry. Yeah. So, so I'm the very last character in the in 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 a simple wish, right? Oh. So they put a, a wireless mic on me, which was the first time that ever happened in my oh life. Oh my
2: god, right? John! The prop
1: guys are like high five of me when nobody's looking. Oh, I looking. will it cry. It was the super coolest thing ever. And then, so we. Sh- we, we shoot the scene. Oh, this is a side note. Michael Ritchie was the director of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. He's a ginormous Yankee fan. It's October, and the Yankees are in the World Series. Okay? This is a, a, a God as my witness on my mother and father's graves. This is a true story. As the game was being played on the radio, if the other team, I don't even remember who it was, was at bat, we would it's shoot. And when, when the Yankees were up... We would just completely stop shooting and listen to that whole half inning. Holy shit. And just let the let the overtime click, 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 click for 100 uh, production people and 150 actors sitting and holding.
2: How did the studio let that happen? with it was he... the
1: last day. Oh, they didn't care. And the, nobody cared. Anyway, so we shoot the scene. It goes really well. Michael Rich comes over and shakes my hand. And I'm so, just so stoked. And I, so I come to find out, like, I don't even, I, this is how green I am. I didn't even realize, like, what this meant.
2: And how right? massively, so, uh, like, the odds were not in your favor for no, this to happen. this never
1: happens, right? So it's 100, I think it was $109 was extra for an eight-hour day. And the day rate for a SAG day player was $550. And one of the extras after I come off says, dude, you just got yourself bumped up. I'm like, what? I don't know what that means. He goes, so we're getting paid such and such today. And, but you just got a speaking role. You're going to get paid.
2: You just quintupled exactly yeah, so like what you would have. got $550 yeah.
1: and plus there was overtime involved. And for the last... 20 something years, I've been getting residual checks for the simple ways.
2: I will shit my pants. Right,
1: they're not huge.
2: But you're getting money for this thing you created for yourself. But I
1: get residual checks, and that would have never happened if I didn't just take a risk and be my goofy self and start fooling around with the prop guys. And I've had a life like that, where just I am completely myself all the time, except when it comes to my sexuality, curiously. I'm off, I'm out, goofy, having a good time. But nobody knew that I was more interested in men than I was in women. Not that that's a big part of what we're doing. Today, it is, but,
2: but that's a part of you mean it?
1: for sure. So, yeah. but at the end of the movie, you get to see me hawking newspapers, and then the very last credit in the actors list is John Douglas Williams, and that's just the coolest thing ever for a guy who, whose father forbade him from being in show business when he was thirteen, and it was time to move to L.A and i go to talk to my parents they say, listen i'm considering moving to los angeles they knew i always wanted to live in la my as my my, my dad's like well we have something to tell you guys so it so like ended up being like a family meeting so my sisters come over and we sit down and i was about to tell them that i'm getting ready to move to la and my dad says your mom is sick and my mom had stage 3 lymphoma and sort of turned everybody's life upside down obviously my dad's in particular and my mom ended up passing away seven or eight months later i found out in may and she passed away uh new year's eve in the morning like seven o'clock in the morning and my mom and dad needed me so i gave up my apartment and i moved home and the, the day that i moved home the doctors decided to move my mom to sloan kettering in new york everything happens the way it happens and I'm not I'm I'm not one of those guys who says it happens the way it's supposed to happen like I don't believe that but everything happened the way it happened and I'm here now talking to you because of all of that so I spent a year with my in my parents house my mom ended up passing away like about two months I moved home in October and then my mom passed away two months later and I spent six months living with my dad and one day like maybe in April I said you know I have to go to California because I know I had given up my car when I moved to New York, and uh, I never asked my, I tried never to, to ask my folks for anything, but he, he bought me a brand new car so I could, He need so he didn't have to worry, so he bought it for him more than me, so that he didn't have to worry that I was going to be driving some $3,000 jalopy around <laughs> Los Angeles, and so I packed up everything I owned, which wasn't a lot, put it in a 5 foot by 8 foot U-Haul trailer, and I drove it across country, I'm Not the, I'm not a super uh, spiritual guy, but... I really believe like my mom was following me around a lot. So two things happened that will illustrate that. So the first thing happened. So I moved in July. I moved into a little bungalow complex. My friend Todd Sherry lived in. he got me in. And actually the year before he was going to get me into one of the bungalows. But then I had to call him and say, I can't come because my mom's sick. I move out a year later and the guy who had moved into the bungalow he was going to get me Moved out and I moved into the exact same bungalow that he was gonna get me a year later. Like it's just crazy So August comes it's my birthday. It's my first birthday without my mom I'm missing my dad. I'm missing my sisters. I'm missing my New York friends. I'm broke as so I go out and I get my mail and It's my birthday and I have there's three cards So the first card I open is from my nephew it was all written by my sister So I didn't know it was from my nephew and I open it up. He's five I think at the time and it's a Mickey Mouse birthday card and there's five one dollar bills in there which just made me bawl my eyes out that my nephew at five gave me his money I opened the second card and it's from my sister and that made me cry more and then my dad had a dog, his dog, his name was Harley whenever we would get birthday cards especially in the mail from my parents, my mom, once said I'd love mom and dad, well this is probably the first time in my life that my father signed my birthday card and I opened the card, and it said, happy birthday, love, dad, and Harley. Oh, my God. And that really fucking destroyed me. Five minutes later, I'm a bawling mess, like, ten times what I am right now. And Todd Sherry comes bouncing down the way to get the mail. And he stops up on my porch. My screen door was there, but the door was open, and he sees me sitting on the chair, and he sees the birthday cards, but he doesn't say anything, and he bounces away, and he's just checking on me, and he knew I was messed, but he didn't even mention it. He just—I don't know—he's just a good dude. And um, when you're kids, you know everybody has their favorite birthday cake. My sister Lori loves bakery cakes with the with the flower petals and the.
2: I'm with you, Lori. They're right, the best with the, kind.
1: With the, with, the, with, the, yep. with the
2: buttercream frosting. Buttercream
1: frosting—the only way but, to go. But my other sister and I love a yellow. Betty Crocker cake with chocolate frosting out of the can. Like, that's just our thing. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there in my apartment. I have no money. I don't really, I can't really go anywhere because I don't have money to spend. It's my birthday. I'm really out of sorts because of my dad's card, whatever. And two hours go by, and Todd comes up and he opens the screen door and he's got a cake that he made from scratch that was a yellow cake with chocolate frosting. That was your mom. with a single candle in it and he sang me happy birthday and he's a professional singer
2: oh my god it's just
1: a lovely moment i'll never forget that the other thing that really happened that was very interesting about eight months oh no four months later i already had an agent i was working it was crazy i was just starting to get booked jobs so i hadn't gotten any of the residual money yet but Mm -hmm. so i was broke but i was working so I, I, I went for an audition right at Christmas time, right before Christmas, and they wanted us to play Hot Potato, people of all different shapes and sizes. So we, we play Hot Potato, and then they go, okay, thanks, and they let us go, and then two months later, we get a call back. So they have us go to a park, and there's hundreds of people there, and they all look like they're Irish. They're all ginger-looking people, <laughs> right? Which is, what up, my people? Which is kind of, you know i'm on the i'm in that spectrum so it's the commercials for gain laundry detergent and they and in the commercial they want everybody to play football and so they have i don't know 100 150 people just mixing and matching playing football and they're shooting all of it basically they're trying to construct an extended family they're mixing and matching mixing and matching and then they say okay thanks guys you can go and i get almost immediately i get a, a text from my agent and he goes they want you back there same spot tomorrow I'm like, okay, I can show up the next day. There's only about 35 people. So there's this little old lady there who looks like an amalgam of my mom and my grandma. So this little lady approaches me. And she's like, can you do me a favor? And I'm like, sure, honey, what, 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 what can, I'll do anything for you. And she goes, so when I catch the ball, I want you to pick me up and throw me over your shoulder.
2: And she's an elderly human? Yeah,
1: she was like ooh, 70. Ooh. She was 65. Ooh, ooh. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll do that for you, sure. And then she says, because the guy who did it for me yesterday isn't here. So she, And she goes, okay. And I said, okay, okay. And then she walks away. And I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. I'm like, I cannot pick up this old lady because maybe they thought that guy was... Too forward. Rec- reckless. Yeah. Maybe hurt the old lady. Dangerous. Right. And so I go up to her. And now, and uh, this is the stuff swimming in my head, right? She looks like my mom. I'm concerned about this old lady being able to pay her bills. And I walk up to her and I say, Listen, I, I really appreciate the fact that you want me to do this for you, but I don't think I can do it. And she says, Why? And I said, Well, because maybe the guy who picked you up yesterday, maybe he's not here because he did that. And she goes, Oh, and she puts her hand over her mouth. And, and I said, So that's not something I can do. And she goes, I understand. And she got really sad. And it really affected me and I kind of shook it off and I just went and played football with all the people and then they kept, and then they had us all stop. They had us mixing and matching with a bunch of different people from the 35 or so people that were there. And then they had a final 11 and I was one of the 11 people that were in the group. And then they said, okay, you guys can go home. And I was more caught up in the moment of thinking about mom and this little old lady than I was thinking about booking the job and I was in a neighborhood that I only had been in the day before I had never been there before and I'm driving home and I had a Nokia flip phone and I call my sister because my sister Tracy can kind of talk me down sometimes I felt bad about the little lady and I wasn't even really paying attention to who was in the final line like, like you're not even aware at the moment when it's happening that you're in the last group until they say you guys go home so I, I'm On the phone with my sister, and I'm driving through Santa Monica in a uh, not on a main street, so there's not really any traffic. And I'm talking to my sister, and she's like, "It's going to be okay. You're fine. You you had to do what you have to do to take care of yourself." And she and you're right. Maybe one you could have hurt that lady, and two, it was maybe it was reckless, whatever. And and I bawling my eyes out. And I get off the phone with my sister, and my pager goes off. And I I pull over to the side of the road, and I call my agent, it's my agent, and they say, you booked a job, you booked the job. And I was like, that's awesome. I really needed that right now. And I look up at the cross street, and it was my mother's first name. I mean... Even still, when I tell that story, it's 20-something years, and I get I get goosebumps about it. The lovely part about the whole story is when I showed up on the next day for wardrobe, the woman who wanted me to throw her over my shoulder played my mom.
2: Shut up,
1: really, really lovely moment in my life, and I I got to walk away from that that commercial shoot knowing that that little old lady was gonna make whatever I made and was gonna be able be able to pay her bills, and it was a lovely experience, really. The, losing my mom, my mom was 57, and I was in my 30s. My sister, my sister Tracy, wasn't even in her 30s yet; she was 29 when my mom passed. Like that's very young, and I, and yeah. I tell this because I you know people. And when you deal with people in your life, sometimes they lose a loved one, you know. And I always try and find the upside from that, you know. I always, like, I got to have my mom till I was thirty-five.
2: Mm.
1: I know I have those people in my life who lost their mom when they were sixteen or yeah. when they were nine. Yeah. You know, and they're not, and those some of those people are damaged because of that. Yeah. And so I sometimes when you know I really try to counsel people when they lose somebody to try and find the positive in it Mm -hmm. um my mom suffered terribly but we got to say goodbye we knew she was going to go we knew it and we got to say you know mom we love you you know and so right so that's good for us but it was terrible for my mom so when it comes to grief like for me you have to find the positives in it because death is inev- inevitable. That's it's right. happening. Right? Yeah. You're going to die. So if somebody you love dies, you have to find the way to find the positive in that. I mean, but that that's part of, I mean, that overall characteristic is super part of my nature. Like, I am i always looked for the positive in every circumstance. Even, like, as an actor, when I didn't book that big job, like, yeah, but I got in that casting director's office and they brought me back for to, to callbacks. Like, they knew who I am now. Like, mm-hmm. there's a positive in that. I mean, and, and like acting is such a superficial thing compared to grief and death. But like, but all the, that, but that fundamental principle applies to everything in life, right? You get in a car accident. Some people are like, fuck, my car's ruined. I'm like, thankful I'm alive.
2: I'm, yeah, I'm wired as the fuck my car's ruined. And then I eventually get to the, glad I'm not dead.
1: And, and so, and so that, that's just how, where I live mm-hmm. every day, you know? And, you know, I got bullied, bullied a little bit. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not that dude. Like, I'm not like, oh, I got bullied. Like, I don't care about that. Like, what? That all those experiences made me
0: yeah. strong as
1: fuck. That's I'm right. not afraid of shit. Right? But when you go through that at the time, it feels awful. That's right. But I think, I think when that stuff was happening to me in junior high school and high school, it was because no matter what they did to me, I was always happy. It's very funny. This is a really super. I didn't even think we were going to get to this place at all. And this thing, the guy who who bullied me the worst when I was in high school so I was little I was so when I graduated high school I was 5 foot 6 but this kid i just call him Mike beat the hell out of me all the time and a few years ago maybe 5 years ago he tried to friend me on Facebook <laughs> and I rejected it I just declined it not even engage him and then a few months later I found out that he died oh well and <laughs> I didn't say oh well but I was very I did. dispassionate about it yeah sure I didn't care yeah he tortured you in my brain I was like "All right, I feel bad for his folks I feel bad for his family curiously I found out after the fact having a phone conversation very recently with a friend of mine that he was gay and he had a husband and I didn't know that never knew that and so he, he you know he's from the same generation I was I don't know anything about him I never saw him a moment after high school don't know anything about him but I know that some men who struggle with their homosexuality take it out on other gay men
2: yeah, but John, you weren't beating the fuck out of people, and you had the same thing going um, on. No, I understand. I'm not justifying.
1: Okay. At all. What I'm saying is, maybe he could see. It, that in you, sure. And and he didn't like that because he knew it was him. Him too, right? sure. And so, after his death, after I get this other information, I'm more empathetic to the situation than I am, than I was, as it was happening, certainly. And even when he, at when I found that he died, like, I I, I had no empathy for his loss, but. But I was certainly empathetic to his family and ultimately his husband.
2: There was, yeah, the people that bullied me, like there was, there's one girl that I'm friends with on Facebook now because she's totally different and come full circle and I can forgive her. But the people that were relentless to me in like junior high, middle school, that whole time, God bless you because I don't think I could come full circle. Like maybe if they apologize now, but even then I'm like, I'm good. Like you, you, whatever, everything happens for a reason and whatnot. I eventually get there. Good for you, John. Well, I, I want to be mindful of your time. So, so as of today, right. you are, where are we with like acting and all like what can. What? So
1: it was a very hard thing to give up, but I stopped acting. So in my early middle thirties, I had eye surgery so that I could see better. And that created some score tissue that ultimately made my vision worse. And so now uh, I can, I, my, I can pass a driving test, but I can't read print off of a page. And the casting people who are casting now largely don't know me because, you know, it's generational, you know, 20 years later as my career dwindled, you know, more casting people. And so if I walk in the room and I try and read, I'm struggling because I can't see the page. And, 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 you know, you say, well, memorize it. Yeah, of course. But sometimes the dialogue is crazy heavy and, you know, and then your agents get frustrated. And So at some point I was like, you know, I'm just going to let this go. And then I had to make a decision and the decision was to to go in a different direction and so i I, i've been doing some writing and i'm working on a a novel the problem is i work so many hours now as a manager in the restaurant business that i don't really get to work on it very often and it's hard to be cohesive and stay with a stay with a a thought process as you're writing you know and say and and also you know working in the service industry because let's get i mean this is a podcast about that right Mm -hmm. working in the service industry You know, day to day really can can affect how you feel when, you know, if you get beat up pretty bad, like just a physical job of doing a job, that job, especially post COVID, we we're operating so small, Mm -hmm. only a handful of employees in the building at a time. And we get a lot of pressure from the people above us to control labor. But there's a minimum number of people can be in the building to function. You have to have a host. You have to have a retail person. You have to have a bartender. You have to have at least one server. You have to have somebody to cook the food. And if you don't make enough money to pay for those people, you feel this pressure from above the cafe level that that really can wear on you. Aside from the actual physical demands of doing the job, Mm because, you know, before COVID, you know, you would help, but you weren't doing all seven jobs every day. That's right. But now you do everything from host to selling retail to bartending to serving to washing dishes to Occasionally, occasionally I'll jump on the line And help That cool. french fries Just yeah. To To be helpful
2: So you're not currently Pursuing it But is it something That you would do in the future If someone were If someone offered you something Would you do something
1: Yes I, I Absolutely So here's the curious part I am 60% invested In my In my pension And It's gonna stay that way Unless I work more oh, And That's fucking uh, And that's I mean that's That is what it is It's frustrating I mean, it is, and um, you know, uh, uh, you don't always get what you want.
2: Hmm.
1: You know, but and, and you want to go all the way. But sometimes you get what you need, <laughs> right? So I don't, I didn't, I don't, I didn't get to close out my career the way I wanted it to as an actor. If I don't ever get back to it, I don't, I, I don't, I didn't get to close it out the way I wanted it to be, right? Hmm. But. I have this lovely place in North Hollywood, and I'm set up for retirement now, even though acting challenged that a little bit. And uh, I'm going to work until I'm 70, and then I'm, and then I'm okay. So, I mean, if you talk about the song, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't get what I wanted, but I'm okay. I'm set up for success for the rest of my life. I'm not going to live well. I'm not, not going to say that. I'm not going to live rich, but I'm taken care of. And I have a place to live till I die, so... So I can again going back to our earlier conversation, take the positives. That's right. Right. All right. I can't see very well, but I see well enough to work in a restaurant, and I can still drive. I'm allowed to drive, so as long as that happens, I'm good. If if I get to the point where I decide to not work for the Hard Rock anymore. And I can situate myself where I'm working l- less hours than I am r- right now. I might try and delve back into it. I know a lot of directors. I know a lot of producers, so I could maybe call in some favors and say, "Hey, listen, I just need a couple jobs to get vested, you know, over the next couple years." And maybe that could happen. Maybe not. I don't know. But I'm not. I'm not stressing about it. it that's that's a, at the moment that chapter's closed. And if the chat if it opens again, it's a new chapter, not the old chapter.
2: Well, that could be a great thing.
1: Yeah, of course. So, yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that.
2: Okay, cool. Well, folks, um, John has is not a big podcast person, and so I wanted to give him an opportunity to have some breath, to tell the story, and I'm so grateful that you trusted our audience with such intimate lovely details so yeah I'm we're gonna move on to the next section sure okay great well we hope you enjoyed your apps we're gonna go on to the entrees after a quick break
1: yeah i just love okay. that that the fact that it's like set up like a meal thank you
0: That's going to do it for us here at Service from Hell with John Williams for part one with him on the podcast. It was such a pleasure having him with over 30 years of experience in customer service. He had a few stories to tell and we were grateful he chose our podcast to do that. So thank you folks so much for listening. Good night.